Episode 67. Hello, and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hamlety. I must apologise for the gap last week. I had a cold so bad that I wound up with actually having no voice at all. And while perhaps this was a relief for my friends and family, I do apologise if you were hanging on waiting for a new episode. We finished last time in the middle of the first player's speech, describing the death of King Priam at the hands of the rugged Pyrrhus. The actor continues with the speech, but Shakespeare doesn't let him get too much further before reminding us that he has a live audience around him on the stage. There's a built-in pause after Priam is hit by the grisly sword. It's rare enough in Shakespeare's verse for a line to be left unfinished. The rhythm of the iambic pentameter pulses so clearly and becomes so fluid in our ears that when it's broken, in instances like this, the pause created can be very powerful. Hamlet is, after all, a play whose events are triggered when a king is killed. A pause here while Hamlet, and Polonius, and Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern, and everybody else, hears such a death described is only appropriate. It's a chance for us to see the talent of the actor performing, too. Can he move us with this speech? Hopefully he does. And now he continues. Out, out, thou strumpet fortune, all you gods, in general synod take away her power, break all the spokes and fellies from her wheel, and bowl the round knave down the hill of heaven, as low as to the fiends. Out, out, as we know from Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene, is a cry to expel something. The speech here is an attack on the goddess fortune, who must be truly cruel to allow such atrocities. Interestingly enough, Fortune has already been called a strumpet earlier in the scene. You can revisit episode 55 to hear more about it, but it's interesting that Hamlet prefigures this image with his own chats with Guildenstern and Rosencrantz before the players even arrive. The player's speech continues with a prayer that all of the gods in general synod, or assembly, all the gods gathered and working together, should take away fortune's power to let such terrible things happen. They should smash the wheel of fortune, break all the spokes and fellies, which were the curved pieces of wood that made up the wheel itself. Then the round nave, the central bit that would be left if the outer wheel came apart and the spokes were broken, could roll down the hill of heaven, all the way down as low as to the fiends. Then as now, hell, where the fiends live, was considered to be well beneath the ground. I assume that in this context, the hill is Mount Olympus, which was where the gods of ancient Greece all had their homes. The actor is again only halfway through a line, but before he might continue with a new image, it's Polonius that interjects and says, this is too long. If the first player has really engaged our attention, this can be quite a startling moment. It's almost a play within the play, and we can be utterly transported to Troy in this shocking, violent moment. For Polonius to give his theatrical opinion is quite a surprise, and Hamlet immediately chimes in to get things back on track. It shall to the barbers with your beard. This is something of a key line for people approaching a production of the play. 
It could be an indication that the character of Polonius should have a beard. Or perhaps, maybe he just looks like he needs a shave after a particularly heavy night of the kind of revelling and drinking that we know Claudius enjoys. Or indeed, it could be addressed to someone else in the scene. It's uncharacteristically out of the blue for Hamlet to pick on Polonius's stubble, but he has already made reference to another beard in this scene. The actor, whose face is valanced since he saw him last, might seem to me to be a better candidate, since Hamlet might also be trying to keep them engaged and included, and since he now feels the need to apologise for Polonius's interruption. He says, Prithee, say on. He's for a jig or a tale of bawdry, or he sleeps. He is encouraging the speaking actor to continue, say on, and explains that Polonius only likes a jig, the kind of dance that invariably ended a play, or a tale of bawdry, a dirty story. Otherwise, he's likely to sleep through it. Hamlet, of course, is very interested and wants more of the story and tries to move things to his favourite part, as he says, Say on, come to Hecuba. Hecuba was the wife of King Priam, and thereby Queen of Troy. In the myths and stories, she bore him at least 20 children. The king himself fathered something like 18 daughters and 68 sons. Between them, they see a horrific number of their children die during the Trojan War, and the queen goes on to be the lead character in two tremendous plays by Euripides, the Trojan women, and her own play, Hecuba. The first player perhaps skips a few lines of further curses against fortune, and comes to a description of the new widow. But who, oh, who had seen the mobled queen? Hamlet immediately interrupts at this unusual word. The mobled queen? Polonius weighs in too, answering. That's good. Mobled queen is good. Mobled is a peculiar word, and Shakespeare relishes it by repeating it three times. Some textual discussions suggest that we should go with the folio version, which says, ennobled queen. This would imply, rightly, that Hecuba is downtrodden, far removed from her former nobility. But I don't know if Hamlet would have questioned that as much as he does mobled, a word that has flummoxed audiences for generations. It is believed to mean something like veiled or covered, but this is the only place in all of Shakespeare that it appears. I love the juxtaposition of Hamlet wondering what the description means, while Polonius, perhaps because he hears Hamlet question it, is trying, as usual, to seem like he knows everything. Yes, that's good. Moblet Queen is good. The poor player must be getting annoyed by now, but he picks up and continues with his description of Hecuba. He starts in the middle of the description, and this is maybe an opportunity for an actor to show whatever feelings he might have about these interruptions. For the sake of clarity, remember that he began with but who, oh who, had seen the mobled queen run barefoot up and down, threatening the flames, with bison room, a cloud upon that head where late the diadem stood? And for a robe, about her lank and all o'er teamed loins, a blanket, in the alarm of fear caught up. Who this had seen, with tongue in venom steeped against fortune's state, would treason have pronounced? But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamour that she made, unless things mortal move them not at all, 
would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. This description of Hecuba is very tender. She's been a figure of pity since antiquity, and indeed her play, The Trojan Women, is little more than an extended lament. Here, she is barefoot, running through the sacked palace and crying so much that the blinding tears, bison room, from her eyes might put out the flames. She has a cloth on her head where her crown or diadem used to sit, and instead of her royal robes, she is now wrapped in a blanket about her lank and all or teamed loins. The writer cannot resist making reference to how many children she was reputed to have had. Who had this scene with tongue in venom steeped against fortune's state would treason have pronounced? Had anyone been around to see her in this desolate moment of distress, they would have cried treason against the rule of fortune in the most poisonous terms imaginable. Hecuba is all alone, and not even the gods witness as she sees the grisly sight of Pyrrhus hacking Priam apart. In the Aeneid, Virgil makes the killing seem even more shocking by having the Greek soldier drag the old man to the altar of Zeus and dismember him on the altar just for the hell of it. But if the gods themselves did see her then, when she saw Pyrrhus make malicious sport in mincing with his sword her husband's limbs, the instant burst of clamour that she made, unless things mortal move them not at all, would have made milch the burning eyes of heaven and passion in the gods. Had anyone been listening, the instant burst of clamour that she made, the loud and sudden cry from Hecuba, would have made the stars weep and aroused great passion in the gods. Of course, the gods didn't hear, and indeed there's a chance, as noted, that things mortal move them not at all. A great feature of classical literature was the question of just how bothered the ancient gods were with mortal affairs. Their capricious behaviour and changing allegiances could easily leave one thinking that they don't care about humans at all. As Gloucester notes in King Lear, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. Hamlet is moved particularly by the conclusion of the actor's speech, perhaps because it details an image of how a queen should behave when her husband is killed. We'll come back to how his mother has responded and continues to respond a little bit later in the play. The difference between performance and reality, between seeming and being, is absolutely central to the way this play unfolds and to the way Hamlet reacts to the player's performance. So it's worth bearing this moment in particular in mind as we move forward on our journey through the play. In the next episode, we'll hear Hamlet's response to the speech, and also he will mention a plan he's starting to develop. For now, I'll leave you with all best wishes for a very happy Christmas, if you are listening at the time this is going to be uploaded. Do be sure to check out the podcast feeds on Twitter and or Instagram, and the show's website, thehamletpodcast.com. I've included with the show notes for this episode a clip from the Kenneth Branagh film of Hamlet, simply because he had the splendid notion of filming the Trojan scenes that the first player describes. In a stunt of real luxury casting, Priam and Hecuba are played respectively by John Gielgud and Judy Dench, and presumably they must be among very, very few actors who can claim to have played the Trojan monarchs in Hamlet. Thank you so much, as ever, for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.